This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Barguzi, and today we have a special privilege to host uh, Rabbi Dr. David Barak Gorodetsky for a conversation about his new book, Judah Magnus, The Prophetic Politics of a Religious Binationalist, translated by Mirav Datan and published by the Jewish Publication Society and the University of Nebraska Press. David Barak Gorodetsky is a visiting scholar at the University of Chicago Divinity School. His research interests include pre-state and early state Israeli history, Jewish American history and religious thought, political theology, and post-secularism. In addition to his recently published book on Magnus, he has published articles on Israeli political history, the acceptance of the reform movement in Israel, and Israel-Jewish diaspora relations. David is also a North American David Hartman Center Fellow and is the incoming director of the Ruderman MA Program for American Jewish History at the University of Haifa, a unique and successful program in Israeli academia. David Barak Gordetsky, welcome to the show. Hi, Bob. Great to be here with you. David, you mentioned in the preface that writing this book has been an ongoing journey of many years and that your perspective has changed during this time. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and about your own journey towards this book and to Magnus? Sure. Thanks, Bar. Uh, I wasn't originally planning to write about Bar or about uh, Magnus or about American Judaism. And uh, I was actually, my, my initial plan was to write a project about Sabbatianism and Zionism and looking into, hopefully I'll get to that project somewhere in the future. But I, as I was uh, approaching Professor Mina Rosdan at the University of Haifa, she suggested I study three different languages, Ladino, Turkish, and Greek, and then get back to her. So eventually I reverted to English, which is more familiar with me. But and I, I got in really into uh, the story of Magnus, and I was really, I think, enchanted in many ways by, by, by the image of Magnus, the complexity of his image. And I will say also, and I say this at the book, that at the time I was, I was closer I, I was a political activist, you might say, and also uh, within the lines of what Magnus was promoting. And I was also very much attracted to his religious worldview and to, the, to what I felt was a sense of very strong religious conviction also in relation to morality. So I was very much drawn into, into his, his, his worldview. And as I had said in, in the preface, that kind of changed over time. I think when you write a biography, it's, it's also good to have it's good to have a proximity and also a distance from the uh, figure you're writing about. And also it's important to be honest about that. So that's me coming clean about 
my relationship with Magnus. <laughs> All right. Um, I want to start off by asking you um, to say a few words about Magnus himself and, and, and his background, um, and especially uh, his ambivalent relation with Reform Judaism. Because on the one yeah. hand, of course, you know, he grew up in, in the Reform Movement, received, you know, his rabbinical ordination from the Hebrew Union College. And more than that, as you say in the book, his approach to religion does reflect the centrality of morality that exists in, in Reform Judaism. But, but throughout the book, um, you document his critique of Reform Judaism on, on many issues, um, even before his immigration to, to Palestine. So how would you characterize his relationship, let's say, with, with Reform Judaism? Yes, Magnus is, Magnus is the first uh, Reform rabbi born west of the Mississippi. He's born in California, in Oakland. He's like the poster boy of Reform Judaism at the time, the native son. We managed to kind of, you know, grow a homegrown American uh, Reform rabbi infused with like the free spirit of, of California. So there's something about that image of him that, that, that's also very attractive. But he has, uh, he, he develops a, a, a difficult relationship with the reform movement on a few fronts. He's ordained. He's ordained at Hebrew Union College at the year 1900. Uh, later, going on to become a reform rabbi in uh, three different congregations in New York, and always clashing with the, the lay leadership around essentially his his uh, two main things. One, his Zionism. We need to remember that Zionism at the time was uh, was not popular in the reform movement. The reform movement essentially rejected Zionism in the Pittsburgh Platform in 1885 and uh, refused to teach Zionism at the HUC, et cetera. So he was, he, essentially his Zionist views made him a bit of an outcast within the reform movement. Reform movement has much more of a universalistic political theology or approach to the question of Jewish nationalism and perceived, perceived it at the time mostly as a religion and not as a nationality. So that's, that's a main uh, point of clash. But he's also more conservative, you might say, in his religious views. He talks about when he's invited to, to, to talk with a group of women about uh, the high holidays and he notices he doesn't know that much and he needs to read more. And he, he talks about the, the HUC training preachers, but not theologians. So he's, he's concerned about their lack of, of, of what he calls religious sincerity, a relationship to the practice. Even, and essentially, he, is, he was supposed to be the founding father of conservative Judaism. It's essentially... Solomon Schechter, after Magnus, uh, in a clash with his last Reform congregation, he in 1910 he gives this spirited, uh, spirited sermon about uh, essentially the need to to reconstruct Reform Judaism, and he is supposed to be the founding father of the conservative movement. Schechter says, in an interview in, in London, we will have a new movement. It will be a conservative movement. Magnus will lead it. it he's the right person. That doesn't materialize, but he has both a Zionist and a conservative trend that kind of put him in odds with the reform movement. Yeah, and, and, and we will we will we'll talk about like also we will talk about the Zionism, um Magnus's Zionism and also his his, his religious world, his inner religious world uh, in depth soon. Uh, but before uh, we do that, I want to read you a short quote from Mordechai Kaplan's journal, um written in written in, in January 1939. Uh, as Kaplan actually was a visiting professor at the Hebrew University. Um, so Kaplan reacts to a recent uh, terrorist attack against Jews that took place right in front of Magnus's house. And, and Kaplan comments, and, and I quote, um, a strange man, this Magnus, with an unusual dose of saintliness and courage, 
in an environment so abounding in courage that it takes its courage for granted and so lack- lacking in saintliness that it has nothing but contempt for his saintliness. Um, end quote. Um, and I like this quote because it almost feels like there's an American fellowship here or a fellowship of outsiders, almost as if the American Kaplan can understand and sympathize with Magnus in, in a way others in the Yeshuv at the time could not because of their shared American background. And, and you also write that Magnus's colleagues at the Hebrew University, who mostly came from Europe, um, even those who openly supported his political aspirations, ultimately viewed him as, and again, I quote from your book, an American troubadour and relic of 19th century idealism. Uh, Gershom Sholem has this famous comment on Magnus's Jeremiah complex, for example. So perhaps you can elaborate on Magnus's character a little bit more and also on how people in the Yeshuv, um, that is in, in mandatory Palestine, how they uh, uh, viewed him uh, in real time. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an excellent story about what Kaplan has written. I wasn't aware of that. I'll just say that uh, this Magnus lived in in what's currently called like around the American colony in a house owned, owned by the Nashishibi family in uh, East Jerusalem. And he actually moved from there to Rehavia, where all the other professors were after that assassination. So a taxi dra- driver that was waiting for him outside his house was assassinated and then he moved. So that also touches on the issue of realism versus idealism in his, in his worldview. Uh, Magnus, Magnus is very lonely in Jerusalem. He's, it's the end of the day. If you look at American Jewish leaders that made Aliyah or immigrated to Palestine, it's Magnus and Arietta Sold. He, he, holds, he, he wears his suit to, to, to meetings in the kibbutzim. Uh, he, holds, uh, he was born on the 5th of July. So he, on the 4th of July, he also holds baseball games in Jerusalem to celebrate his, uh, his, his birthday. There's something he's perceived by many of the Yishuv as, he's, as surprisingly traditional for, 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 let's say, from the point of view of, of, of looking at his reform views. But his, his, his worldview is, 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 is foreign to them. Uh, Shmaryao Levin tells him, who do you think we are kidding? We know you didn't grow in the knees of Torah. Okay, he, his his religious views are totally misunderstood or not taken into account in within within that context, and he's a bit he's perceived a bit of a as some a bit stern, a bit inflexible. Uh, Sholem also calls him an American boss, which is uh, in the university <laughs> context, which is not a American boss in a Jewish Quaker. That's what he calls it's him. Not, not not as a compliment. It's not as a compliment, but he's. And, and what you actually alluded to is that something about this kind of prophetic figure, both in his. I'll, we'll, talk about it later when we get to his political theology, but it's part of both of his self-identification. Uh, it's more about the proximity with American American uh, viewers, including Christians, notable Christians that, uh, that are visiting Jerusalem, including the Anglo-American committee members. They perceive him as kind of this prophetic Jeremiah figure, whereas the Jewish issue perceives him as out of touch from the current realities uh, too American in his perception of various of various aspects relating to to too naive one might also say. So 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 let's let's uh, uh, let's uh, talk about uh, about Magnus's political theology because this is I mean you say that this is uh, what the book is essentially about and um, actually I, I just found out we are recording this episode on November eleventh at eleven a.m. Uh, which is actually the one hundred and third anniversary of the end of World War One. 
and uh, I'm saying that because it seems from your book that World War I triggered this theological crisis uh, in Magnus, uh, as it did for many others, of course. Um, in a sense, it invalidated for him the optimism of modernity and the Enlightenment and this belief in the progress of humanity. And really, one of the most valuable things I've learned from reading your book is that after the war, Magnus drifted away from liberal theology and showed some genuine interest in the theology of Karl Barth. Now, why do you think Barth's dialectical theology um, had a special appeal uh, to someone like Magnus? So we, we, we addressed earlier also, you know, his, his fraught relationships with the reform movement. But what I, what I in, in, in many sense, flesh out in the book, it, he maintains like this kind of dual religious identity. He's torn between this more conservative, and I'll get to Bart, to Bart in a minute in relation to that, to more conservative and kind of stern and, and like questioning theology on the one hand, and his liberal upbringing and his essentially, uh, he maintains his commitment to the idea of mission theology, which is the reform idea that the Jews have a political mission to the world. And at a certain point of time, he thinks that that mission is pacifism. So if you look at during the war, once the U.S. joins the war, in uh, April 1917, so he's, he becomes one of the leaders of the, of the pacifist movement across the U.S., uh, the most notable Jewish speaker on this topic. It actually poses a lot of problems for the Jewish establishment in the U.S. because he's also German amongst other, in some of his origins, amongst other problems around that. But that's during the war. But what happens after the war for many theologians is that they kind of ask themselves, you know, what went wrong? And when I, as I was kind of browsing, these are the things that, you know, historians in, encounter in real time. I was browsing through, one, through Magnus's papers and then on the backside of, of, a, of a journal entry, there was like a short paragraph that he copied, which was actually uh, Thomas Hardy's uh, poem, Christmas 1924, which reads, peace upon earth was said, we bring it and pay a million priests to bring, peace upon earth was said, we sing it and pay a million priests to bring it. But after 2,000 years of mass, we got as far as poison gas. <laughs> that is like, in a nutshell, yeah. the religious yeah. crisis of, of liberal Christianity and of liberal Judaism. And for Magnus, he's re he, this triggers a, a, a deep kind of soul-searching and a deep religious... And this is his main religious quest. Essentially, Magnus is a person trying to find God in history between the two world wars and beyond, which is a, a very, very demanding and, and haunting and daunting and maybe impossible task. Yeah. So this leads him into a position where he, I, I'm not going to say that he's a well-read, intellectually versed uh, reader of Bart. He reads a, a, a translation, uh, an article about Bart in, in the Christian century in, in a paper that he receives. And essentially he, he picks up on Bart's understanding that God is remote from the world and you can't really reach him. You're more dependent on God's action towards yourself. This kind, in order to invalidate the kind of liberal messianism, the kind of uh, mess, general messianism that, that, that permeated through World War I, the idea that, the German idea that you could realize a better, a better kind of world through war. Uh, and when Barr does that, when, when Magnus reads that, he says something essentially like, uh, I would have loved to realize Ju Judaism completely and the complete realization of Judaism is Zionism. But I'm aware that eventually that's not going to be possible. It's going to be barren. It's, going to, it's not going to work out. So this is Magnus in 1928 kind of, you know, acknowledging and understanding that his, 
political idealism can't really be re- realized. The thing about Magnus is he does it anyway. That's part of the of the prophetic motivation. That's part of the of the of the of the kind of this. Essentially, it's a religious quest for him because this is the idea that even if you can't realize God in the world, you still have to try, and that's where where Magnus goes. Yeah, and 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 you write um, that you don't view Magnus's political activism as an alternative to the religious sphere, and and this is, I mean, uh, now, now I, I I realize um, uh, what you meant by that because you see it as the actualization of his religious ideas um, and conceptions, right? So it is his religion, uh, you you insist, his theological quest, as you put it, that motivated him to act in the political sphere, right? Yeah. Essentially, at the end of the day for Magnus, and Mendes Flor, by the way, writes this specific sentence as well, that uh, politics is, is an act of faith. So uh, acting politically is, is a manifestation of, of, of faith for Magnus. So I just want to say that within the complexity of Magnus, it's, it's a bit tricky because there's two sides. On the one hand, he, he's kind of motivated by this also kind of prophetic self kind of understanding and imperative that he has to act out. And that that action is an attempt to realize God's uh, existence in the actual world. On the other hand, he has self-doubt about that. And he talks about himself and other uh, Jewish American leaders. I think he's specifically referring to Stephen Wise, but there's also others. And he kind of says, um, are we really believers? You know, we, he says, you know, let's look at, he, we can't pray like these pious women that I see at the Western Wall. So instead of doing that, we throw ourselves into social action. It's actually our way of saying, you know, we have lost the connection with God and therefore we try to act. And I think that's a question that's also, I think, sometimes raised in relation to reform Judaism today. And I think it's a question we can re- address at the end. But it's essentially, is, is social justice Judaism a manifestation of a lack of faith or a lack of interaction with, with, with the deity or a lack of God language or a lack of the ability to relate to that sphere. Well, to, to paraphrase uh, Yerushalmi, if history is the fate of fallen Jews, so maybe politics is, is, is also, <laughs> you can all... Yeah, politics is the fate of, of failed reforms, right? Fa- yeah, like the fate of, of failed reformed Jews, maybe. Yeah. Um, um, so, so, so let's turn to the issue of, of Zionism, um, if, if we already address politics, um, because you present Magnus as someone who is caught, again, between Reform Judaism and, and Zionism, and, and, and he has, uh, of course, profound difficulties with both, uh, because both, uh, for opposite purposes, of course, try to separate nationalism from religion. Um, but for Magnus, this separation seems, um, you know, the separation of the national from the religious seems to be impossible. And, and you even argue that it is specifically this tension between uh, these two aspects or two dimensions of Judaism that ultimately uh, brought Magnus to propose binationalism as a solution to the Arab-Jewish conflict. So can you explain this argument uh, and perhaps elaborate on what Magnus called a religious and not political model of nationalism? Uh, what does his religious model of nationalism look like? I think one, one thing is that looking back, it's difficult for us to see this, but essentially for American Jews, for American Jewish Zionists in the first, let's say, one or two decades of the 20th century, the Zionist movement was too secular. Like, you know, Salman Shechter says, I'm concerned by all these secularists. You know, I, I will not be able to call myself a Zionist soon. Uh, essentially, the... the Magnus is, 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 
in many ways shares that concern. And there is a concern that Zionism is, is, is removing itself from, from religious identity. And then the question is, if you do marry Zionism and religious identity, what is the religious identity that is infused into that? And for, and for what, are, what, is, what is the core of, of, of religious commitment in relation to political commitment? And I think in many places, Magnus returns to this idea that religion is like the ultimate core of commitment, that this is the basis and this leads him, this, now, this, this transforms throughout time. When he is in America, Zionism is for him also a lot to do with the Chad Am, like this vision of realizing uh, a cultural center. When he's back, when he's in Palestine, he becomes a bit more critical about the, the nationalist project. So just a few, a few ideas relating to that. First of all, Magnus is American in relation to his na- idea of nationalism. He doesn't hold this kind of folk nationalism that most of the people coming from Europe hold to. It's a civic idea of nationalism. And you might say it's a bit of a weak idea of nationalism. Nationalism is not like this core kind of blood identity that, that you associate with this kind of, of, of European ideas. So in, in and of itself, he already, already has a quite you know, quaint idea of what nationalism is. And then eventually he, 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 he eventually goes even to, eventually to adopt the idea that nationalism is does not have to be not necessarily have to be politically realized. Nationalism is can also be this he says this in 47 when he's re- rereading Spinoza, he said nationalism doesn't necessarily need a state. So he ties nationalism into the ideas of religious commitment, of Jewish continuity, together with the fact that he has an American idea of, of, of nationalism. That ties into we'll talk we can talk about how that ties into binationalism as well in a minute. Um, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I mean, uh, you, you just mentioned, I mean, the, the American background and the, the, the influence of, um, you know, the American political system or the American view of nationalism on Magnus. So uh, go ahead. Yeah. What is so American yeah. about Magnus's uh, politics or political theology? And if you want, uh, you know, to tie to uh, the, the, uh, his binationalism uh, solution uh, yeah. and also, um, you know, kind of compare it to um, Buber's uh, binationalism or Brit Shalom's version of binationalism, how, how, how they are uh, different. Yeah, so, the, 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 you know, the, first of all, it's, it's important to note Magnus never joins Brit Shalom himself. It's, it's a bit of a technicality, but it, it has to do with his uh, relations at the time with the university. But um, if you look at binationalism and the way bi- the research, current research on binationalism uh, in Palestine at the time and in the European circle, there's a lot of emphasis on, on Buber and on the influence of, let's say, Dmitry Shumsky writes about this, the influence of the, the atmosphere of Prague and the, like the kind of bilingualism of, of the time. So you have this group of essentially European thinkers led by Buber, influenced by Chadaam. Magnus is also influenced by Chadaam, and there's a shared kind of understanding there of the importance of the Arab question, so-called, about the moral requirements of Zionism. They share that view also through Chadaam. Uh, if you look at the political solutions, that's where Magnus really, Magnus plays in in two ways, in my claim. One is in terms of the way the political solution he, he, he subscribes. Magnus is an American federalist, pragmatist, de- democratic kind of thinker. So he rereads the federalist papers at the time, and he's looking for a model that would be, on the one hand, a just model that relates a lot also to his religious views. I'll get to that in a minute. But he's looking for a working program He's looking for mechanisms of, of, uh, of, uh, of government. He suggests 
why don't we do something like we have in the States? This is what you suggest in, in 1929. Uh, two houses, a house uh, in which there is numerical parity and a house in which there is like, essentially the equivalent of the Senate and the Congress. So he's thinking about models. Uh, Buber is an anarchist in terms of his political ideas. He doesn't have a program that says, this is what we need to do. He's much more charismatic. He suggests these kind of charismatic communities relating to each other. So Magnus is, he brings like this American pragmatism into the discussion. And when they speak, say, with the Anglo-American Committee in 1946, Magnus is, is, is perceived as much more, both speak there, and Magnus is perceived as the more realistic kind of person. Uh, what Magnus also brings to American binationalism, not many people are aware of that, but also quite a few of the other Americans that were in Palestine at the time. For instance, a person called Jesse Samter, which was a poet, and and also Henrietta Solds. That's that's a certain there's current dispute about that, but essentially uh, they're also binationalists. Hadassah is a binationalist organization, so the Americans also bring certain political ideas to binationalism, and according to what I try to demonstrate also the reform ideas of prophetic justice and of mission theology are brought into the attempt to realize binationalism. So binationalism realized, first of all, it's based on a weak idea of nationalism. It's not a very, you, by even suggesting a binational idea, you, and you're putting forward the idea that people are willing to forego a certain level of national ties. That's, or, or, that's already an American idea. In terms of binationalism, but also it's it's also this uh, this idea that nationalism has to be subjected to a certain level of justice, and binationalism is the realization of that justice, and it's a egalitarian, symmetric kind of model for 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 that kind of prophetic justice. And just to, one other thing that kind of maybe demonstrated a bit more of a stronger religious commitment, and not just uh, the reform aspects of that. Magnus writes in quite a few places the idea that a sacred land should not be subjected to nationalism. And he writes this, this, you know, this is surfaced in later discussions about Jerusalem, uh, but it's essentially this idea that if this land is sacred, then then nationalism secularizes it. And this idea then binationalism becomes a way of overcoming the secularizing tendency of nationalism and maintaining, like, you know, essentially the sanctity of the land. So that's a, a bit of a more essentialist kind of argument on the religious side. Um, so you mentioned uh, Magnus's uh, pacifism, and I want to dwell a little on what you call Magnus's abandonment of, of pacifism. Um, so uh, just a little background for our listeners. Um, in fall 1939, uh, two months, I believe, after the German invasion of Poland, uh, Magnus gives a speech to mark the beginning of the uh, academic year at the Hebrew University. Um, in, we, in, in this speech, he somewhat tragically confesses that in light of this new political reality, he can no longer embrace pacifism. And, and you quote this, this speech in length, and for good reasons, I think, because I find it extremely honest and forthcoming, because he actually shares his profound religious doubts on stage. Um, and I want to read a couple of sentences from, from this speech um, sure. to, to illustrate this. Um, and again, th- that's in the book on, on page 203 um, uh, for our listeners. Uh, so I'm, I'm quoting, uh, uh, I'm reading uh, Magnus. I shall say something which, is, which, it, which it is hard to say. When I support this war, as unhappily I do, 
I know that thus I am in conscious rebellion against the divine command, thou shalt not kill. I have not the steadfastness as once I thought I had to fulfill this divine command under any and all circumstances. It is a terrible thing to realize that what one thought was part of one's religion is subject to change because of what a single man can do. Citizenship can be changed. The place of a man's home, his friends, his interests, his social and political ideals. But when a man speaks of his religion, he speaks of his God, uh, of that absolute which gives life substance and meaning. It is for our sins that we are thus punished. God has hidden his faces from us. We must now bend the knee and beg forgiveness. And I, I think this quote beautifully captures the conflict in Magnus's inner religious life. Right? On one hand, we see here um, a need for absolute religion, absolute God, absolute morality. But on the other hand, as you write, he remains very much uh, uh, you know, a believer in the political order and in, in American uh, uh, democratic principle. So uh, how do these two poles or dimensions of, of Magnus thinking work together? And how did the late 30s and the early 40s um, shape his views, you know, on, on the problem of evil and religion in general, and 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 whether did they did they change his uh, political activism, the way the way he actually, uh, um, you know, act in the political sphere? Yeah, it's it's a, it's a great quote and it's a great question. I think essentially what I try to demonstrate is throughout his career, political and religious career, the way in which. Uh, the religious transformation he undergoes affects his political thinking and, and affects his, his, his politics. I'm kind of trying to say, you know, this goes to the issue of the historiography of, of, of American Jews as sometimes understood as, you know, religion being left out of that, that, of that historiography. And I'm saying, you know, this is a reform rabbi with strong religious commitments and let's see how that infuses his politics. And you can see the tensions, right? You can see why, when it's not very clear. I think uh, Magnus is, is describing uh, uh, what, uh, sense of conversion here. He's kind of losing his religion, right? But he, he he understands that there is a political circumstances in which he needs to do that, but he's also kind of outlining the kind of the tension and the pain uh, that is entailed in that. So for Magnus, as you look as, as his political views also evolve, you can see how like the religious is, is uh, tied in essentially behind that. And this leads him uh, one, one more thing to say, this moment of speaking before the Hebrew University at the opening of the year, this is his stage. This is like this one prophetic moment of the year where he gets to speak to everybody. All the, you know, the audience is full with reporters. And this is like his biggest moment uh, annually. And there's also a lot of contention about that moment usually. But essentially what he's saying, and he says this also later on, is the war progresses. Magnus talks about the, the idea of God hiding his face from him from us and from him. And that's a very, very strong feeling for Magnus. And Magnus, and I claim this also in, the, in, in, in re understanding his response to, to the Holocaust, Magnus has a much more profound understanding and, and reading of, of the hiding of the face compared to, say, uh, Hugo Bergman. Hugo Bergman was, uh, his life was saved a few times during World War I. And he essentially has this idea that hiding the face is a temporary phase and it's only based on man's inability to see God. But actually, Magnus has a much more deep kind of correspondence with that idea. And eventually, he outlines in a speech, a similar speech in 1944, he outlines his entire theology and, and, and he kind of rebukes all existing 
theological explanations for the Holocaust. He says this can't be because they have sinned. This can't be because we are quietists. This can't be because uh, he, he invalidates any form of religious thought up until that time. And eventually what he says is a kind of re- existential kind of claim. It says, you know, we, we, we have to turn our face to the future. He doesn't say, I can see God on that horizon. But he says, I have to turn anyway. And that's a form of, that brings together, I think, two elements of his theology. One, this essentially is this existentialism that, that lurks into, into the end there, but also the idea of, of a theology of quest. We talked about this with Bart. I will continue to search for God, even if I can't realize him in this world, and even if my political attempts to realize him have failed. And I knew they would fail, and they would eventually fail. But the fact that I continue to search is... This is the glory of, of, my, of my commitment to God. This, I think I can, we can also see this, and I'll say about it maybe also in relation to current, current views on this topic. Yeah, so, so, so let's, I mean, I hate to do it, but let, let's move to, you know, from theology to politics or, or about like current, current views on, on topics. Uh, so you, you write that Magnus, um, I mean, as you said just now, we understood pretty early that binationalism was a lost cause, right? So, so in light of this, um, what is Magnus, you know, first of all, political legacy, if, if we, if we turn to, poli- to politics, but if you want to say a few words about like how, um, his, uh, religious world or how his theology, uh, uh, what is the legacy of his, his theology, uh, feel free to, 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 to touch on that too. Uh, but in terms of like the, the political legacy, um, first of all, in terms of the Arab Jewish or, or Palestinian Israeli conflict, uh, so, for example, would he have supported a two-state solution today? Uh, but also, in, in more in more general terms, uh, should we take from Magnus this subordination of politics to religion? Isn't politics, um, you know, the art of the possible uh, or, or and of the pragmatic? Uh, is there room in in politics for this kind of absolutism that Magnus seems to seems to demand? Yeah. It's a great question. I, I, I want to put in a term that I use to both for Magnus and Buber, and, and I claim that both of them see binationalism as a form of theopolitical realism, meaning it, it, essentially they believe that this is the longer durée of, of politics. Okay, that you know, religion shows us that a temporary form of politics is not going to work out. You know, it's going to be endless war. Some people might say that that's what we're seeing now. It's a fair argument, but it's essentially this idea that. At the end of the day, following the religious commitment will prove to be the right way to go. So that's that's both him and and Buber share that idea. So I think a lot of of Magnus's you know following is is translated into this idea, as you said, of submitting you know essentially politics to to morality, speaking to truth to power. And he, Magnus, if you ask people what are people that are drawn to Magnus, especially in the Jewish American world, uh, they would say that you know this is a person that knew that foresaw the future, that knew that we need to speak power, truth to power, that, you know, the, uh, we have to submit. This is a Jewish commitment to submit politics to, to a certain level of, of morality. Another way of, of understanding Magnus in that sense is what happens when idealism fails. You know, he, essentially he, he presents an ideal and that ideal fails. And that's, that's I would argue, his Jeremiah complex and a bit of, 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 of American Judaism's uh, Jeremiah complex sometimes in relation to the conflict. Uh, it's always like this feeling that everything is about to, you know, if, if we don't stand up now, uh, 
it's the end of, of, of a certain era. And, 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 and it, it, doesn't, it didn't really happen like that. If you look at history, Magnus died in 48. And we, you know, the state of Israel is realized and, 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 and is there and, and, and is out there in the world. So uh, w- there is this idea that this, uh, this kind of subjecting, what is the extent to which you subject uh, politics to moralism? But also the idea sometimes that American Judaism can maybe present an alternative political theology in Israel. Maybe the fact that at the moment, uh, at the time when Magnus was acting political, putting theology into politics wouldn't have served him. The Yishuv was very secular. But at the time, maybe presenting an alternative political theology has validity. That's something that that needs to be explored. Uh, specifically on binationalism, I think that uh, for Magnus, at the end of the day, it was more about the justice element, and it was the idea of prophetic justice needing to be realized. He couldn't imagine that being realized in a national, in a two-state solution, but I think that doesn't mean he would not support a two-state solution today. Uh, he couldn't imagine the, man, the, man, the British leaving. His idea of binationalism included the British being here as well, so he couldn't imagine that as well. So I think he would, he would sign to uh, uh, what he would perceive as a just solution that's acceptable on both sides. And I can definitely see him supporting a a two-state solution. One last thing about current binationalism, I can definitely say that he would not have supported uh, one state for all its citizens kind of binationalism that doesn't include uh, what he... Uh, the, the issue of the cultural center for Judaism and like the he, this was extremely important for him. So this is still a Jewish, even as a binational solution, it was still a Jewish state within the, the Jewish side of the context with all that entailed in terms of language, culture, etc. Because again, you can't eliminate this national cultural uh, dimension of, of Judaism and of yeah. Jewish people. You yeah. can't eliminate it, but the tension is how do you realize that within a very complex and difficult political situation that not everybody foresaw. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, so you want to say a few words about like uh, uh, Magnus's theology or religious world and, and uh, with relation to current, uh, current affairs? I, I, I'll say, maybe I'll relate this to what I'm working on and maybe in a way I've, I've slightly moved from, from, from Magnus. Sure. And um, Magnus is essentially the, the, the realization of a liberal political theology. And, uh, and it's, it's kind of crisis with, uh, this is, you know, the death of liberal Zionism kind of discourse in many ways, right? You know, Zionism not being to, not Zionism not being able to live up to our liberal expectations. I am currently looking into, into theoretically and in, into questions of, of liberal and conservative bridge building, the idea that how do you, how do you understand the society, both on the lines of post-secularism and, and uh, deep diversity in various terms that, that relate to understanding Israel as, as a complex entity in terms of religion and politics, and how do you overcome uh, liberal messianism within that sense, okay? It's, it's, so messi- there's messianism on both sides, and, and, and there's utopianism on both sides, and idealism on both sides, and I'm kind of looking at, at theoretical frameworks, one of them which is called the unity of opposites as a... As a political theological idea, the idea that, you know, you try to bridge divides between conservative and liberals to kind of create the kind of peace that eventually I think Magnus was also searching for. So this is just to say the, the tragedy of Magnus also is that he dies in, in October 1948. You know, this we're concluding the, 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 the discussion. He dies and we, we have, it's like this historical moment where we have no information about 
what would he have felt after? What would he have known after? It's kind of, a, it's difficult to say if he would have transformed his view this way or the other. He dies with his program in many ways. And that's, that's part of the tragedy. But I, I, I think that what I take from him also in terms of, of uh, his political, academical, and, and theological kind of commitment in that sense is, again, this idea of, 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 of pursuing peace and this idea of searching peace, but it doesn't necessarily have to translate into the kind of liberal prophetic framework uh, that he describes. Um, this was Rabbi Dr. David Barak Gorodetsky and his new book, um, Judah Magnus, The Prophetic Politics of a Religious Binationalist. Um, so thank you, David, for, for taking the time to talk to us today uh, and for writing such an, an excellent book. Thanks a lot, Bal, for your thoughtful questions. It was uh, fascinating.